0: becoming a house of prayer. Becoming a house of prayer. And I want to study together four passages um, today. We're going to start in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. So you can go ahead and start turning there. Matthew chapter 21 is where we'll start as we explore this idea of what it really means to become a house of prayer. If you have a Bible or the Bible on your mobile device, go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew chapter 21. None of the scriptures uh, are, are going to be on the screen. I, I really want us to see this with our own eyes and feel this with our own hands, so to speak. But in Matthew chapter 21, there's a very startling scene. Probably the, one of the most uncharacteristic moments of Jesus' ministry. But before we even read it, can we just bow our heads for another word of prayer? He, God, We want to come before you um, just with a sense of hunger and thirst after righteousness. You promised in Matthew 5 that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. So Lord, we want to hear from you. We're praying that we would hear not just the words that are spoken, but that we would hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So please speak to us exactly what you know we need to hear. Reveal yourself to us in the way that we need to see you. Send us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, amen. 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 Matthew chapter 21, we'll read from verse 12 and 13. When you're there, go ahead and say, amen. amen. All right. Matthew chapter 21, I'm reading from the New King James. And the Bible says, then Jesus... "...went into the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold doves." Verse 13, "...and he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a what? A house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves." Do you hear in this the sense of identity that, that God longs for his people? I mean, you can kind of sense the passion with which he wants his people to be a house of prayer. And you can see how much he values that just based on how strongly he feels when that sense of identity is lost or forgotten or even replaced, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer. And I just want to take a few moments just to let that phrase sink in and do some defining of terms for a moment here. My house, my house. What is is Jesus talking about when he's referring to my house? What is God's house? Well, in the immediate context, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, right? He is in the place of sacrifice and worship. He is there in the temple. And so, you know, this is the place that God said, he let them construct for me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Right? The sanctuary, or what would later become the temple, that was the dwelling place of God so that he could dwell with his people. It was also the place where the psalmist says, "You know, Thy way, O Lord, is in the where? It's in the sanctuary. Right? That temple, that sanctuary was supposed to reveal the very ways of God. I think it's Psalm 48 I was reading. Uh, it says that, uh, that we can meditate upon his loving kindness in the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is supposed to be a revelation of his character. The sanctuary was supposed to be the place where God's glory could be seen. My house is that place, that temple in Jerusalem. However, in the broader context of Scripture, you know, God's presence is not limited a specific geographical space or place. Can we say amen to that? Yeah? When you look at the broader context of Scripture, you know, I think of verses in, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not just talking about a place, but God's house is wherever his presence is. Do you follow that train of thought? God's house is wherever His presence is welcome. In other words, your heart and mine can be the very dwelling place of God. Amen. Wow. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Could it be that the temple is not just a place, but His people? Yeah? And so when He is saying, my house, He could also be referring to His people shall be called a people of prayer. Wow. Now, when he says of prayer, he's, taking, he's saying, hey, my house, whatever its characteristic content, whatever its defining purpose, that should be primarily of prayer. Wow. Now, prayer, when we're talking about prayer, now that's, that's a deep subject. It's a broad subject. I'm so thankful for the 10 days of prayer that we've had thus far. Uh, let's see. I guess that's been three nights of prayer thus far. Tonight, if you're able to, please join us. We'll just kind of rearrange the stage here a little bit. Uh, we'll spend an hour in conversational prayer, united prayer together. And I've been so blessed by this. Prayer, you know, the Greek word itself is It's It's a directional word. It's talking about directing your heart, or directing your desires and wishes to God, okay? That's what it is literally. But when we're talking about prayer, you know, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books, Steps to Christ, says prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend, right? So prayer is more than just petitioning, it's also praising. It's more than just praising, it's also just pouring out our hearts to God. As to a friend. Heartfelt, heartful communion with the Savior. This is what prayer is. So, my house shall be called a house of prayer. God's house, as a place and as a people, should be filled with and function expressly for that kind of communion with God. My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house where I dwell, where I'm fully present, that is to be characterized by heart to heart communication with the Father. And the point is this that God wants to reside in our heart temple is not just that Jesus desires a place of prayer, but he also longs for a people of prayer. I'll say that again. Jesus desires a, not just a place of prayer but for his people to be of prayer. So what God calls his dwelling place, let's say it again, it's supposed to be characterized by heartfelt communication with him. And the reverse implication is simply this, that wherever there is sincere prayer, that's where God dwells. Right? Wherever there is heartfelt communication with God, that's what he can call his house. That's where he is most fully Present. And so, kind of a foundational principle here that we'll talk about, um, you know, when it comes to becoming a house of prayer, is simply this. That sincere prayer secures God's presence. Sincere prayer secures God's presence. And I wonder today, do we avail ourselves of this privilege? Do we avail ourselves of the the invitation to come boldly before the throne of grace as we should or could? I tell you what, when we do, God is happy to make our hearts his home. God is happy to make our hearts his home. He's happy to be fully present, to be residing with us, to be abiding in us. And when Jesus is, is kind of Uh, walking into the temple, he realizes, whoa, this temple isn't functioning in this way, right? He sees something that that really causes him to to be stirred up in his spirit, and he begins to share, hey, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In fact, when you look at verse 13, he starts with three words. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So when Jesus is, is teaching this, Uh, telling us about what sincere prayer does for God's presence, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. Do you know where he's quoting from? Do you have a footnote in your Bible, maybe? We read it for Scripture, actually, today. It's from Isaiah chapter 56. Actually, go there with me, because when we see that, when we see that in its original context, we see that Jesus may be implying a lot more than we give him credit for. Isaiah chapter 56. Go with me there. Isaiah 56 when you're there go ahead and say I beat you. <laughs> oh man. Slow fingers today. Here we go. All right, Isaiah 56. Beginning in verse 6. You know, this was read for us. Thank you Michelle for that. Now, in this context, when you can just kind of let your eyes scan the context a little bit. God is addressing him this word specifically to people who feel like they're on the outside. He's addressing this to foreigners. He's addressing this to eunuchs. He's addressing this to people who wouldn't normally be welcomed in the temple of God. But then he says in verse 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. And over and over throughout this chapter, you get the sense of God bringing, God gathering, God bringing in the outcasts. He says in verse 7, And make them joyful in my house. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And what are the last three words there? For all nations. Yeah? I mean, that's kind of the dominant theme throughout Isaiah 56. Hey, what you've limited God's grace to be available for. No, 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 no. Don't don't put boundaries on that. It's for all people. My house should be called a house of prayer for all people. So the context specifically, it refers to the fact that Gentiles were to be converted to the true God. And when Jesus walks into the temple on that day in Matthew chapter 21, he's realizing, whoa, uh, the, the people of God, the chosen people of God, they're actually treating God more as a product to use, more as a product to market, rather than a person to love and live for. But when we enjoy heartful communication with God as a person instead, the blessing of God turns his place into a house of prayer, not just for those chosen, but for others outside. It turns it into a house of prayer. The blessings reach beyond just my own enjoyment, and that opens up the door for prayerful communion for others to experience as well. And this is, you know this is something that pulling from the last sermon series, we, we kind of saw this pattern that the blessings that God sh- showers upon us, they're not just for me, they're for other people as well. And so what we see about sincere prayer is that it leads others to God's presence. Sincere prayer leads others to God's presence. My house shall be called a house of prayer. When we pray, A, God abides in our hearts, makes our hearts' his home, and B, others around us are now able to know God as they could and should. God wants to be present in our lives. He also wants to be present through our lives. What a privilege. And yet, on that day when Jesus walks into the temple, that is not the dynamic he encountered, right? That house that was supposed to be called a house of prayer, that not just that place, but that people that were supposed to be a house of prayer, they had instead become, do you remember what Matthew 21, 13 said? But you have made it a den of thieves. A den of thieves. You know, maybe there was some underhanded uh, inflation, uh, commercial inflation going on where they were actually exercising some level of thievery on a financial level. But I think the robbery that most concerned Jesus was of a completely different kind. That that phrase, Den of Thieves, is also a quotation from the Old Testament. It's not from Isaiah, but it's from Jeremiah. Go with me there. Jeremiah chapter 7, and see what Jesus could be rebuking altogether. Jeremiah 7 is the, the very next book, just a few pages over. Jeremiah Chapter 7. When you're there, let let your eyes kind of scan uh, the the context there. We want to land in verse, I think it's verse 11 that Jesus is quoting from. But in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is given this word from God, and he's supposed to go to the temple of God, where there are worshipers gathered for worship. And he's supposed to proclaim this message And it's really a message of rebuke. Let's start in verse 8. Jeremiah 7, verse 8. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. He says this in verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Earlier in the chapter, he's talking about their mentality that, hey, everything's just fine here. This temple won't be destroyed like Jeremiah has been preaching about. Don't you worry about it. Hey, we've got the temple of the Lord here. The temple of the Lord is here. We're, we're, We're safe. So in verse 8, it says you're trusting in lying words that cannot profit. Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? What? Do you follow what Jeremiah is kind of pointing at? They're living double lives. Right? They're living completely for themselves, irregardless of how much destruction they impact other people's lives with. Then they come and worship and say, Oh man, I am saved to do these things. <laughs> in verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Oh man, that's ugly. This was the people of God being rebuked for living double lives, for their immorality, for their idolatry, that turned their practice of worship, their habits of seventh day Sabbath worship, into a complete mockery. And God called that what what, do you think this was? A den for thieves? And you kind of wonder, why would God use that kind of imagery? Why would God refer to thievery and robbery and stealing? It's because those who pretended to know God were actually stealing glory from God and the opportunity for others to know that glory. That's the kind of thievery that was going on. And in Matthew 21... When Jesus shows up to the temple, he connects the dots between Isaiah 56, what should be, and Jeremiah 7, what it actually became. He connects these dots and he says, well, when we are not a house of prayer, that's what we actually become. When we are not about communion with God, whether individually or collectively, we actually start stealing from God. We actually become thieves and robbers of the glory of God, not just from God himself, but from others who want to know that glory. That is what we turn into when we cease to become a house of prayer. So if you're just kind of imagining a spectrum, the more we move away from being a house of prayer, the more we become robbers and thieves. The less we engage in in heartfelt communion with God in, in prayer, the more apt we are to rob God of the glory he deserves and to rob others the chance of knowing his glory. My conviction, my burden as your new pastor is that we would recover our identity as a house of prayer. That we would recover a deep dependence upon God in prayer. And I'm not just talking about like praying more routinely. Not just talking about praying before a service or before an outreach project. Or you know. What I'm talking about is deep and heartfelt communion with God in prayer. We cannot afford to go through the motions of doing church. While robbing God of the glory he deserves. And robbing others of the chance to know him. I mean, we, it just takes two seconds on the news to realize we don't have much time, <laughs> right? I believe God wants us to become a house of prayer. And I'm saying this for myself. I'm saying this out loud so that you as a church family can, can hold your leadership to that kind of standard. Hey, Are the things that we're deciding, are the things that we're doing, are the things that we're investing in from the overflow of our communion with God? Or is it just from our back pocket of past experience? Or is it just from our back pocket of, well, this is comfortable? No, no, no. I want to depend upon God in prayer. (laughs) I want to be a house of prayer. And when you realize, when you go back to Matthew 21, when Jesus cleanses the temple... And he establishes this identity. The very next verse, do you realize what happens? People flee. Yeah, the money changers go. Those who sell doves, they, they leave. But then who else comes in? Those who need healing. Those who are broken. Kids who are filled with their mouths of, whose mouths are filled with praise to God. When we become a house of prayer, oh things start transforming. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. I believe that's what God wants to see. Man, the more we engage in prayer. Well, let's say this again. Let's just kind of review. The the less we engage, the less we are a house of prayer, the more we become robbers and thieves, right? But the reverse implication of that is true. The more we become a house of prayer, the more we begin to give God the glory he deserves. The more we begin to give the community a chance to know the glory of our good God. Do you long to be a house of prayer? I do. I do. So the heart-searching question that we need to ask then is, well, what keeps us? (laughs) What keeps us? Me personally. What keeps me personally from being a person of prayer? What keeps me personally, my heart, from becoming a house of prayer? What keeps us as a church family from being a house of prayer? Of prayer. Is it indifference? Or maybe unbelief? Or maybe I, I tried that and it didn't work? Is it busyness or distractions of the world? Or is maybe it's just kind of a, a, a different conviction, like no, that's that's not really what works. Is it an ignorance or a lack of know-how? Maybe a sense of inadequacy or even a, a lack of knowledge about who God is and what he wants to do through prayer. What is it? What is it that keeps us from being a house of prayer? If you can put a finger on that, if the Holy Spirit can put a finger on that, let's say that. If the Holy Spirit can put a finger on that, then I tell you what that is what needs to be taken out. That is what needs to be cleansed from the heart temple. Our desire to become a house of prayer, whether as a church or as individuals or as a household or as a family, our desire to become a house of prayer must be accompanied by a willingness to let God cleanse the heart temple. And this is the connection to communion. (laughs) Maybe you thought, man, he's standing and preaching around this whole table and he's not even saying something about communion. This is the connection to communion. Becoming a people of prayer isn't just a matter of flipping a switch, saying, okay, okay, we're a house of prayer now. (laughs) I've tried that myself. Okay, I'm a man of prayer now. No, 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 that's not. Prayer is the fruit of something else. And I would submit to you that genuine prayer, becoming a people of prayer, is actually the result of repentance and revival. I mean, you think about this. Think about a group of people who were really about prayer in scripture, right? My, my mind goes directly to the book of Acts. Right? My mind goes to the early church. The disciples were all together in one place, in one accord, praying, right? But where did that come from? How did they get to that point? Did they just flip the switch and say, okay, guys, it's, it's prayer time. Let's just make this our new identity. Let's put it, posters all around the church or whatever. No, 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 no. Or the upper room, I guess, in their situation, <laughs> No, they didn't flip the switch. Do you know what happened? Calvary. They encountered the cross and saw the empty tomb. When they met the resurrected Lord and all that he had done for them, that changed everything. They became a house of prayer as a result of beholding Christ crucified. Crucified and him resurrected. That when they gathered in the upper room to pray, they realized, whoa, I can lift my petitions to heaven knowing that my friend is at the right hand of the throne of God. (laughs) That we have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. That changed their prayer lives. (laughs) They met Christ crucified and him resurrected. Their encounter with the cross compelled them to pray fervently and unitedly. You know, God foretold that, and this is our last scripture I want to go to. God foretold that this would actually be the case. Go with me to the last, I'm sorry, almost the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Zechariah 12. Zechariah is not necessarily a book that, you know, I, I read for bedtime material or things like that. Zechariah is kind of deep and and very symbolic. It's almost like the revelation of the Old Testament. Second to Daniel, of course. Zechariah chapter 12. When you found it, say, I found it. Awesome. Zechariah chapter 12. A very interesting promise that I believe God was fulfilling in the experience of the early church. And he wants to fulfill in ours as well. Zechariah 12. And this is verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, so two groups of people, kind of the the, the leadership and the laity. House of David, inhabitants of Jerusalem. What is he going to pour on them? The spirit of grace. And what's the next word in your Bible? Supplication is what mine says. Yeah, Maybe your version says pleading. I've seen some versions like that. He wants to pour the spirit of grace and supplication. and Then it says this, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Do you see the two pictures here just in this verse? It's side by side. There's a picture of God's people broken as they behold the one they pierced. Right? They're grieving. They're mourning over sin. Like, whoa, we did that. And that picture of sorrow for sin, mourning over the one whom they pierced, that picture is side by side with a picture of God filling us with grace and supplication. That word supplication, that's, that's talking about not just grace received, but asking and pleading for even more grace to be poured out. I'm sorry. I think I'm standing in front of the monitor. So catch this. God wants to give us a spirit of grace that cleanses our heart temples from divided loyalties. Actually, if you're there, you're still there in Zechariah 12. uh, This prophecy kind of keeps going. Go to chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. I know that the chapter breaks there, but I think the idea is still in the same vein. Verse 1 and 2, it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened. For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There are those two groups again. For sin and for uncleanness. God wants to open this fountain. Well, What fountain, what will this do? Verse 2, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. This fountain of forgiveness, this fountain of grace that's going to be poured out will cleanse us from idols that keep us from being a house of prayer. God wants to pour out a spirit of grace that cleanses our heart temples from those divided loyalties. And he wants to fill us with the spirit of supplication. Man, here are the absolute terms that God speaks with. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It, it just will be. And then here in Zechariah 12, I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. This is something God is determined to do. The question is, will we let him? (laughs) Will we be in agreement with what God wants to do? So two simple appeals before we transition into the communion experience together. Appeal number one is this. Will you embrace a new identity? <laughs> Will you embrace the identity of becoming a house of prayer? And I want to encourage us to, to, to embrace this identity on a personal level. Yes, I want, I want my heart to be a house of prayer. And then I want our church family on a collective level to be a house of prayer. Will we embrace this new identity? Will we let God do all that he needs to do in us so that we would actually be called? He would look on us and say, Yeah house of prayer. (laughs) How many of you want that? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Second appeal is simply this. Not just to embrace a new identity, but specifically today as we experience communion, the appeal is to engage communion with a broader end game in mind. You know, a lot of times we come to the communion table just read you know, receiving the the forgiveness and cleansing from sin, and we ought to. But I want to encourage us to engage communion with a broader outlook, that we would experience God's forgiveness and cleansing so that He can make us houses of prayer, a house of prayer. Will you do that today? Yeah? Engage communion, not just for the forgiveness and cleansing, but also for the infilling of the Spirit of grace and of supplication. If that's your desire, I, you know, I invite you to, to stay as we now start transitioning into our communion service. You know, Obviously, uh, for those who are familiar, we, we normally, in normal times, uh, we would precede this service with a foot-washing service, a time for the ordinance of humility where we would partner up and, and wash each other's feet. And uh, what we're going to do in place of that, because we haven't figured out necessarily how to do that safely with appropriate precautions, um, we're just going to have a time of transition. We'll have a time for reflection, where you can really take this word and let God wash you by the washing of water with the word. You know, go ahead in silent prayer as the music is playing. Let it be a time of reflection and confession. A time for silent, just, here God, go ahead. Giving him the green light. I also want to encourage you that, you know, as the foot washing is a symbol of humility and service, that you would allow God to really instill that spirit in your heart. Okay? So I'm going to pray. We're going to switch some things around. And then um, we'll begin our communion service. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven. This is your house. Our hearts, your house. And if you want your house to be a house of prayer, then today we say we want that too. Thank you, God, for inviting us into a journey that that is beyond us. We cannot make ourselves hearts and homes of prayer. We cannot make our church, we cannot flex enough spiritual muscle to become a house of prayer. So the best thing we know to do is to come to the foot of the cross. Oh God, as we transition into this special service, we ask that you would fill us with a spirit of grace and supplication. Cleanse our heart temples today. Thank you in advance for the ways you're going to work the miracle that we need you to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.